Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Southwestern Advantage is about so much more than just helping your family with education. Our company is the nation's oldest entrepreneurial program, helping college and university students build character and develop the skills they need to achieve their goals in life. These are the kind of skills employers seek that cannot be taught in a classroom. Skills such as problem solving, effective personal communication with people from all walks of life, confidence, attitude, goal setting, and more. Since 1855, the Southwestern family of companies has invested in purpose-driven people who are inspired to build principle-guided businesses that impact the world. And for many, that purpose started with a summer at Southwestern Advantage. But this program isn't just about growing the young men and women whom you'll see in the community. It's also about growing your own son or daughter, and the educational resources they will bring to your home are second to none, with learning systems that address the whole child from preschool to 12th grade. Uniquely designed by top educators, these resources serve the modern needs of today's private, public, and homeschooled students. They're kid-approved, parent-preferred, and teacher-recommended. At Southwestern Advantage and the Southwestern Family of Companies, we invest in building people and inspire them to achieve their goals in life to positively impact the world. Learn more at southwesternadvantage.com slash action. Today, we're so excited. We have a special guest, Mark Rao, who is a member of the Southwestern Family of Companies Board of Directors. He's the Director of U.S. Sales. He leads the entire United States sales force at Southwestern Advantage, the oldest direct sales company in the U.S. So welcome to the Action Catalyst, Mark. Great to be here. So to get started, now tell us what brought you to Southwestern. What, what's the journey been like over the last three decades for you, Mark? When I got out of high school, I was just in a situation when I was younger where my parents didn't have any money. Um, they're divorced and didn't have any money really to help me out with, with college at all. So when I graduated high school, my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, my high school sweetheart, she um, got a full scholarship to the University of Florida, very, very intelligent woman. Um, I was more the social guy in high school. So um, there was no scholarships coming for me. I was lucky to get into UF, but I didn't have any money to pay for it. So I worked all summer um, as a lifeguard, taught all the kids how to swim. And then in the fall, I actually worked for the post office about 50 hours a week, throwing priority mail, and I was able to save enough money to afford one semester of college. That's all I could afford. And so I went to the University of Florida and... Um, I got recruited. I got recruited. I asked one of my professors if he knew of a summer job where I could make a ton of money in a summer because I, I didn't want to have to work during the school year. I wanted to be social and be in a fraternity and have fun and do sports and stuff like that. And uh, one of my professors had heard about it because back then UF was the number one school at Southwestern 15 or 16 years in a row. And so a lot of professors knew about it. And he said, yeah, there's this, this Southeastern company or something. They, they, usually, they usually pass out surveys and attack kids after the drop ad line. Because back then you had to stand in this long line to drop and add classes. And he said, yeah, they're always there just forcing people to fill out surveys. And so I went down there and I filled out a survey. And um, Brian Friedman called me. 
and uh, decided to do it. <clears throat> this was probably in February or March, and and uh, you know went home and told my roommates, and they definitely made fun of me <clears throat> and laughed at me and told me it was going to be you know it was a cult and I wouldn't come back. And you know then I told my girlfriend who you know made me understand how I wouldn't see her all summer, so that was challenging, but she supported me. And then I called my mom and dad, and that was not a fun experience. You know, my mom literally screamed at me and threatened me, like to the <laughs> to the point where my uh, girlfriend was sitting next to me, and I was calling my mom to tell her. My mom started screaming and threatening me to the point where my girlfriend started crying at the things my mother was saying to me on the phone to not do this job. And then my father was like, you won't make any money, but you might learn something. So not a lot of support. So as a result, um, this is going to be hard to believe for the current audience, but we did not have cell phones back in 1988. And I did not talk to my parents the entire summer because I was upset that they didn't support me. And I can tell you it was very satisfying at the end of the summer to put the check across the table in front of their face. And I can honestly tell you, they have not doubted me since that has been, that was the change, um, where my parents, you know, you ask them today, they'd say, yeah, we just, at that point knew we didn't have to worry about one of our sons, you know? So, yeah, so I ended up doing really well, uh, my first summer and then, um, got a lot of good friends from that. And I just decided to keep coming back each summer and I was never a, a huge recruiter. I'd bring out you know, two to five kids a summer, that was it. But the ones I brought out were just really sharp buddies of mine. And uh, the first guy I ever recruited, Adam White, brought three 20-person teams. And um, I, I recruited a guy named Greg Best in my fraternity. He recruited a girl named Katrine Lacroix that brought five 10-person teams and sold 10,000 units. Um, a kid that I grew up with that was two grades below me in high school, Josh Bevington, brought five 10-person teams. So unbeknownst to me, I built an organization. And it wasn't like I was trying. I just kept being positive about the experience and I kept doing better every summer. So the people I recruited kept seeing me grow. And so they kept coming back because they expected to be growing like I was. And by the time I graduated, um, I had like 70 or 80 people under me. Um, and I actually, you know, I took a job. I took a job with another company that was started by Southwestern alums, First Meridian that my student leader was working with. Um, and, and I said that I'd always promised though, that I was going to full-time recruit when I graduated and I was going to have a money summer, we call it, cause you don't have to pay for college. So you just go out and make as much as you can and you save it. So I did that. And that summer, my group just blew up and did great. And then, uh, Tom Boyd flew up to Cincinnati and offered me the DSL job. And I've done this talk and you probably heard me do it. And I won't, I won't go into that right now, but I have a, a whole talk I, I I do with my students on how to pick a good career job, and I wrote down things that I wanted and I needed, and I and I felt like I could ask for because of what I was willing to do in college. I could demand in job interviews, and so my job interviews became reverse interviews. Like I interviewed the interviewers to make sure they met my qualifications that I had written down that I wanted in a job, and. It was a very logical decision to stay with Southwestern because it was the only job that met all of my requirements. So it was a very logical, pragmatic decision because I did not want to be a person who was going to be changing careers every three or four years. 
you know, I'd seen that. I'd read a lot of books about staying with something and how that's going to lead you to wealth quicker than jumping around to things. And so when I made that decision, it was going to be for my career, not for a couple of years. And so I uh, talked with my girlfriend, who was then my wife at that point, And we decided on Southwestern, I called First Meridian and told them I wasn't going to be working with them and started as a district sales manager in 1992. And so, uh, yeah, so one of my favorite things to, to say is, you know, same job, same woman for 33 years. So I have to ask, man, when, when you were creating your vision for building your business to Southwestern, what were some of the steps you followed for bringing that into focus? Well, I think, I think the most important thing to creating a vision is, is what your mission is, you know, and how you believe in that mission. Because, you know, I've been around a long time and I've seen sales managers with our company come and go and you're going to have up and down years. You're always going to have those in life. And what gets you through the down years is a, is a strong belief in what you're doing to impact other human beings. And with Southwestern, that was one of my, one of my core things I wanted in a career is I wanted to have some kind of positive impact on other people. Cause I'd seen what the summers at Southwestern had done for me and for my friends and for people that I had recruited. And how it had changed their lives, literally, you know, putting people in that kind of difficult situation where they're all alone and learning self-talk and, and working 80 hours a week. And so whenever I had like my first years at DSL, I was DSL of the year with Southwestern. My second year, I owed the company $10,000. My third year, I was DSL of the year again. My fourth year, I owed the company another 10000 and I learned something from each one of those summers. I really did. It probably took me till my fifth or sixth, probably my sixth or seventh year with Southwestern where I was financially doing consistently well. But, but during the down years, you know, our mission is to build character in young people and to help kids and to give everybody a shot. And uh, I had grown up in a situation that, you know, I had a good family, you know, but I, I had a lot of things going against me. When my parents got divorced, I was living with my mom and she was going through some tough stuff. And I, I could tell you some pretty brutal stories of me, you know, living alone in high school for two or three years where my mom went to her boyfriend's house every night. I mean, literally having to kick men, adult men out of my house when I got home working eight hours after going to high school. Um, I mean, seriously, it was pretty rough and brutal. And I think a lot of, a lot of people will use those excuses in life to rationalize their behavior later on in life or to rationalize why they're not successful. And I wanted to be a person that showed people, it doesn't matter what you come from, there's no excuse. You can still make it successful. You can still you can be a good parent, even though you might have watched your dad make poor choices. You can be financially successful, even though you might watch your dad go bankrupt a couple of times. You know, so Kim and I, you know, one of our biggest goals when we started a family was to just, you know, break generational sin and, and just show our kids like a loving, wonderful marriage that and what to expect of a man since I had daughters, what they should expect of a man in their lives. And um, anyway, so. The vision was created by 
you know, and I didn't think about this at that point, but just writing down what I wanted in a career job, you know, things like, um, um, uh, being paid based on performance, not a salary, um, being promoted based on performance, not because I knew somebody owning part of the company. Um, you know, so having some kind of profit sharing plan. So I knew that my coworkers weren't going to backstab me, you know, um, respecting my peers. You know, I didn't want to be working alongside a guy that got the job because his dad knew somebody. You know, the thing I love with our company is everybody that's in those leadership positions earned those leadership positions. So you just have a respect for everybody you work with and everybody's opinion you care about because you know what they went through to get into that position. So there's all these things that I wrote down that were important to me. Um, I had to respect my boss because I had had Tom Boyd as a mentor and the man was, he was like my second dad, really my, my real dad, you know, and I looked up to him so much and I looked up to his marriage and how he raised his children. And so I could not have a bad boss. So I would literally interview the bosses when I was at job interviews. I'd be like, I want to know who I'm reporting to. And I'd ask them questions. And as, as crazy as it sounds, if the guy was divorced, I wasn't interested in working with that company because I didn't want to work with a person that had given up on that. And that sounds crazy, but you know, I was that strong with what had happened in my family not happening. And I didn't want those examples in my life. So it started with that. And then it really moved into impact. Um, and that really became my vision was just impacting positively as many people as I possibly could. And this seemed like the best vehicle to do it. I, I mean, some of my happiest moments is I've got stacks and stacks and stacks of letters, probably 3000 letters I've received from students that I, that I've helped and, and how this impacted them in a positive way. I've got some of my favorites in my office and I rotate them in and out so people can walk in and read them. And, um, that's the best part of it for me. And so I think if you, if you are really believing and holding to your mission, then it's easy to create a vision. And, and then when you can't see the vision because good and bad stuff's happened, I can tell you all the stuff, but, uh, then you're going to always fall back on your mission, which is, you know, ours is just what we do for young people and, um, and, and just helping build character in these young people and then setting them off in the world and having them be better dads and better husbands and, you know, better parts of their community. And, and I've seen it, you know, firsthand. So. So, hey, you also talked about helping other people with their vision. Talk about that a little bit. Okay. So I think one of, one of my strengths that's caused me to be very successful at, at being a Southwestern district sales leader is treating everybody, you know, the same. Um, and, and when I, when I travel campuses, I don't care if the kid, you know, sold 300 units, which to us is not a good summer. That means they made two grand. Or if they sold 3,000, I spend the same amount of time with all of them when I'm on that campus. When I go to campuses, I work the job like I am their district sales leader, not like I'm a director of sales for the U.S. So I do every part of the job that I ask my districts to do, I do it. You stay in touch with what everybody's going through and you never get too far removed. As far as creating visions, I think the easiest way to do that with people is to start with numbers, I think is the easiest way to do it. For example, Edgar Abara, who's one of my up-and-coming district sales leaders, I, I had a meeting with his campus at the University of Texas San Antonio three years ago. 
And their goal was to be a top 10 school in the world. And back then they had probably 10 people on the campus, you know, maybe. And so I sat down with his student leaders in a, I'll never forget, it was an apartment complex. It was their meeting room. We had a dry erase board and we just started doing numbers. So, okay, you have, how many are in here? Five. Okay. If you guys each bring three rookies, that's 15 first years and five student leaders. Average student leader sells 3,000. Average first year, let's say he sells 1,000. So that means next year you guys have 30,000 units. Okay. Now out of those 20, 35% come back. Okay. So now you've got seven student leaders next year. And then we just kept building it out for five years. And we showed that within five years, they would be a top 10 school in the world. I think right now they're like number four. So we started with the numbers and then and then we started talking about a name for their organization, because once you get to a certain level, you're able to name your organization. And Edgar and the group came up with visionaries. So it started with numbers and building the belief and building the excitement. And then from then it just took off. And now they have their own vision for their campus. They have their own vision for their leaders. So I think if, you know, when you say to somebody, how do you create a vision? It's pretty overwhelming. The easiest way to do it, if you're just getting started and you don't want to get overwhelmed, is just look at numbers and just start building out for five years, 10 years. And then things will start happening in your mind of, of how that would feel and, and, and the people you would impact. And then it just starts exponentially multiplying. You got to stick with what you believe in. You know, there's so many times I get attacked with schedule, you know, like we need to lower the hours because that doesn't work nowadays, or we don't need to call them demos anymore. Let's call them this, or we don't need this many commitments a night because nowadays, and in these so many things you have to defend and stick to what works and you'll get attacked from all fronts. But eventually you'll get the group of people that shares your mission and shares that vision. And then it's amazing how it grows. Exactly. You've always kept that vision. So so what are some of the ways you've worked to redefine possible in your leadership role at Southwestern Advantage? Well, if, if we start with, you know, when I was away, I, I ended up being a, a corporate recruiter, a headhunter with my mentor, Tom Boyd. He owned a placement company. I was working with him. And then I had to, you know, I had to go to my mentor and tell him I'm going back to the company I'm leaving you. And I, and I was his top recruiter within two years. I was his number one recruiter. You know, when I came back, that was really tough because my organization had shrunk 40% in two years. So when I did come back, I was in a position where some of my leaders, some of my best had left because I was gone. And so then I was developing these new guys and gals and having to create a vision with them. They had had an easy manager you know, a guy that was more of a, you're great all the time, not really digging in with them. So that was an adjustment. I probably lost a couple more people because of my management style, which is more earn it, earn it, earn it. You don't deserve anything. You know, there's always a challenge when you're putting your systems into other people that are established and they have their own systems. So that takes years to do. You know, you just have to keep winning the war, not the battle. You need to let the comments fall away and and take the high road all the time and eventually you win them over you know it's it's kind of like raising children you know they can eat poorly and they cannot exercise but if they keep seeing their parents eating correctly and exercising 
then eventually they're going to eat well and exercise. And it's going to take years, okay, for them to finally do it. But eventually they will do it because that's the behavior that you've modeled. So it's always model the behavior you want them to do instead of telling them to do it, model the behavior. And then eventually they do the behavior because they, they see your actions, not your words. Your words don't mean anything. You know, if we're at a company meeting, how you treat the the waitress, you know, um, at the restaurant, how you talk with your assistant, you know, I mean, it's it's every type of interaction that you have to model the correct behavior. It's not just how you're dealing with someone in a meeting or a personal conference. It's how you're living your life. Like when you're hanging out with your wife, how do you treat your wife? How do you treat your children? You have to be modeling behavior in every part of your life because most kids don't want to go door to door 80 hours a week. They don't. So they're looking for a reason not to. And if we provide that reason because we're late for a meeting, because we're not professional, whatever, then they're going to jump on that. So I really feel like our job is so challenging because we're really trying to be role models for them in every part of their life, not just as a business entrepreneur, but I want them to see a good marriage. You know, I want them to see successful children. I want them to see everything that they can have for themselves too. So it's every little conversation. It's not rolling your eyes at anything. It's just, it's just modeling the right behavior all the way through. And it's, it's, it's a work in progress. It takes a long time. It's not quick. Okay, man, I'm excited to hear. You got to tell us about the journey of 2020 and the journey through the pandemic and what you had to do to make that year a success. I think the bottom line, once again, I'll go back to is my absolute belief in our mission and what we do for young people. So once COVID happened, never one time in my brain or anyone I've worked with, and I can say that, did we think we weren't going to be having a successful summer. It might look different. It might be totally, you know, virtual or whatever, but we kept moving forward. We never hesitated. We moved forward. So first it went to, okay, we can't recruit on a college campus. So let's go virtual, you know? So we were 26% down in recruiting. And by the time April, the end of April, early May, we were 30% up in people. So we took adversity and completely reshifted. All these companies were scared and they're fencing in and they're canceling their internships, canceling their semester abroads, canceling all this stuff. Kids were losing jobs because their hotels and the restaurants were shutting down and the bars. And we just kept fencing out, fencing out, fencing out, fencing out. So we just picked up everybody, anybody that was losing a job. We're like, we got a job. Yeah, we're still going. We're still going. We didn't know how we were going. You know, we didn't know what we were doing, but we we're going to keep moving forward. It's kind of like um, Steve Jobs when he you know designed that black box that he knew designing it that the technology wouldn't be ready for three years, and he was hoping it would be ready in a year. So he designs his box, and then realizes technology didn't catch up. Well. We were fencing out and recruiting and holding parent webinars, not realizing how we were going to sell this thing door to door. I mean, we really didn't know. So we solved the recruiting thing by the end of March. But then I was like, okay, well, now we've got to solve. How do you virtually sell door to door? How do you do this? Right. So 
So then we have to solve this problem and we have to solve it in five weeks. Okay, we have to have a schedule. We need to have metrics. We need to have sales talks. We need to have virtual slicks. We need to have all this stuff done and we need to prove it's going to work before we can have kids doing this. We got to be able to look at the kids in the eye and go, look, we have documented evidence that this works. So we started with six different beta tests. We did a beta test of, you know, talking to Southwestern alums or talking to previous customers, um, talking to low producing students, their customers from the year before, um, calling, uh, we had given out our website for free to help with COVID in the month of April. So we called those people that we gave the website to free, free for. So we tried all these beta tests over two weeks and we found out there was two groups of people that were the most likely to purchase. We had two teams of seven people each. We set a schedule and we had them work from day to night for three straight days. And we, during those three days, the average person, first time ever virtual selling, using these methods, using our new sales talk, using our new scripts, was able to make enough where if they did it for the summer and didn't get better, the average person would have made 10 grand. Then we knew we could look at these rookies and go, we have a workable model. This is what we're doing. Never in our mind was it not going to work. Never was there a doubt. Never was there any kind of fear. It was all, how are we going to solve this? And Jane, to be honest with you, I probably worked harder those two months than any time in my career. And I probably enjoyed it as much as any time in my career because it was new. It was scary. It was like back when I was on the book field, no guarantees and just, and it was exhilarating. It was exhilarating. I loved it. And so we solved the problem. And then we um, brought them to sales school and COVID died down a little bit. We had to come up with, you know, how do we get kids trained face-to-face? So we spaced them out. We bought masks for them and then sent them out to the book field and um, had to teach them how to put that into their approach and how to wear masks and how to, I mean, it was just crazy. Mark Rao, ladies and gentlemen, very inspiring, Mark. A true example of redefining what is possible for yourself and others. So thanks again for being here, Mark. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.